What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by a very special guest, Raul. So if you're around FinTwit, you've definitely heard him in spaces, definitely been in some of his spaces because he hosts some great people, great guests, and provides some amazing insights. We get into a little bit about his background, the overall macro environment, and earnings. There's been a lot of talk about Microsoft and Tesla earnings lately, so we get into that. We get into take a dive into both of those companies and some of the projections that Raul has going forward. So if you've heard him speak before, you know this is going to be an action-packed episode. So be sure to tune in and remember, ladies and gentlemen, that this is not financial advice and should never be taken as financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is strictly the opinion of both Raul and myself. And with that, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and share with friends and family share to get the financial education out there and much much more so on that note let's get into the episode whoosh what is up everybody i'm back with another edition of the macro insights podcast i've got a very special guest i've got raul if you're on fintwit you've definitely heard him in spaces he provides great macro insights and just talks all around about the stock market Provide some great insights. So, Raul, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Brandon. Thanks for uh, having me and appreciate the intro there. Yeah, of course. So, um, for those who don't know, you know, not everybody, I guess, is all around uh, FinTwit or maybe hanging out in Twitter spaces. So, why don't we? T- why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background? Sure, I'll happy happily do that. Um, so, I've started uh, working in the financial industry about 2013. I worked at uh, Bloomberg, which is a pretty big um, finance data media organization. I was there for about seven and a half years. It's from 2013 to 2021. I worked in the data division and then also in product um, during the last stint of my career there. And then from there, I moved over to this company called Fitch Ratings, which is one of the big credit rating companies. So there's S&P, Moody's, and Fitch, which make up for a majority of the market. Um, in the credit rating business. So that's where I've been for the past, say, 18, 19 months now. So it's been pretty good. I'm a head of product here for their data and technology team. So that's what I'm doing right now. And then, of course, I'm sharing things and content on Twitter and FinTwit, as we call it, or this little bubble of financial folks on Twitter um, and just trying to share some insights related to macro topics or tech or stock markets. So it's been fun. I mean, I started doing that right between when I was switching jobs because I always knew of Twitter as this news source, but I didn't really use it to actually like post much content. And I, of course, with everyone in 2020 saw this craze going to Twitter and people were posting a lot of, a lot of uh, cool information and market related topics. And I didn't even know this community kind of existed. So just started posting things and it's been, it's been pretty fun. And, and Twitter spaces, of course, are amazing medium to kind of have these type of conversations and podcasts and things of that nature. So um, yeah, a little bit you know, about myself. And of course, I've invested in the markets as well. Um, very long-term oriented. I, 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 I try to focus on picking stocks and companies that I think are well-positioned for the future and, and areas that I believe in. So, 
Yeah, overall great stuff. And it sounds like an awesome background. So you're just getting, you know, get, getting your feet wet in the Twitter world, just kind of uh, getting into the spaces and everything like that. But, you know, why don't we t talk a little bit about that before we kind of dive into the macro? Um, you know, you, you brought up Twitter spaces being a great medium. And uh, obviously, we got kind of connected through there. So, you know, how has that, I guess, uh, you know, helped your outlook and kind of helped you know, share some ideas back and forth because it seems like, you know, on Twitter, like you're saying that the FinTwit kind of quote unquote bubble has some, some of the you know, best minds in it are a lot of the great minds in the industry. Uh, they're all just openly kind of discussing, you know, what they're seeing, what they're going, what's going on, kind of their viewpoint. Um, and then, you know, maybe they're going, uh, they're talking in a space to us and then they're going on CNBC or something the next, the next morning, uh, given like a five minute little soundbite or something like that. So, how has that medium uh, kind of helped you as an investor and kind of helped you, I guess, like understand the markets and uh, develop different theses throughout uh, throughout your time on Twitter spaces? Yeah, great question. I think, yeah, we probably did meet on a Twitter space. So that product's not been out for too long, actually. I think it intersected with my time when I just started tweeting more about the stock market. So I was a pretty early user and started noticing that, you know, I can contribute to FinTwit and also use this platform, the Spaces side, to actually network and speak to folks, right? Because Twitter's obviously you're writing things, or you're writing content, and on Spaces, you're able to kind of do a podcast fairly raw, right? It's unedited, really, and you're just kind of speaking to others. So it was a really fun idea when it came out, and that was a time when people were still kind of stuck at home and kind of doing all these, uh, looking for avenues to kind of speak on different topics. So. Twitter Spaces kind of came out around that time and I started using it and just slowly started networking with people while I was still also sharing like different content related to the, the markets and tech. And it became an, a, a great way to network with people because a lot of times you're on Twitter and you see people and you're like, oh, this is some amazing stuff. Like I, I love reading what you're sharing, but it's hard to connect with that person, right? If you don't have any relationship or you don't really know them, you can try to DM them or you can comment on uh, some of their post but a lot of times that interaction is is hard to trigger uh, uh, uh or forge a, a good relationship right away right it takes time and you have to keep on doing it whereas on spaces if you get someone to come on or you see someone in the audience that you've been a follower of and you can talk to them that that starts that relation much quicker and you're able to also kind of share some insights vocally rather than just from the things you're writing so that adds more to your personality and people kind of see, oh, this is a you know, real person. And I mean, I share my real picture on Twitter too, but there's people that don't and they just kind of want to keep the identity separate. But when you speak to them and they're, they're super smart and they, they know a lot. So it's like a great way to actually network beyond just writing. Right. So I think that medium is, is amazing. It's taught me a ton. I've met tremendous people there. I've learned a lot. It certainly helps with my kind of research process and the, thesis is I'm trying to develop on the markets because you're speaking to people from all sorts of backgrounds, right? You're speaking to people that are in the industry that have been investing for quite some time. Like you mentioned, they're on CNBC and major news outlets and they're normal people just like us, right? They're talking about the markets. They're, they, they have different backgrounds or various perspectives on what's going on. And, and honestly, once you develop yourself on Twitter and you start sharing stuff, people are more willing to engage with you and talk to you because you know you, you you're putting out content that they may may or may may like or may disagree with even and then you can have that engaging discussion on spaces so it's a great avenue to just network and 
learn from each other because I mean, the past couple of years in the markets have been, I think a huge learning experience for anyone, no matter how long you've been investing. I mean, there's so much that's happened, so much that's been unprecedented and so much more to learn from, right? I mean, some of the data you look at today, it's historic, right? I mean, if you look at inflation or the Fed funds rate or kind of how the markets have moved in the past couple of years, I mean, the swings have been like record breaking. So no matter how much you know, I think you're you're going to continue to learn. And I think Spaces allows for that and allows you to do it as a retail person, right? I think in the past, you don't have this type of access to folks that were investing at this like a much larger scale or have this type of experience because social media outlets have only grown right in the past five, six, seven years. And I think space is another vertical that adds to that. And I believe that's really helped Twitter. I mean, I've used it a ton. I've hosted many spaces and it's been really fun and exciting. So great meeting people there too. Yeah, for sure. And it, like you're saying, you know, that just the networking and being able to bounce ideas off of some of the great minds in the, in the industry and also some, you know, just, uh, I guess, Anon accounts who also have like great insights and, you know, different walks of life and other things like that, too. So, you know, you can kind of get, I guess, caught in like an echo chamber or some sort of bubble. But I think if you, you know, open yourself up to these spaces and FinTwit has such a diverse, you know, crowd of people where it seems like, you know, you can find basically one person on one side of the coin and then somebody with a very strong opinion on the exact opposite side of the coin making you know solid arguments on both ends so but you alluded to it a little bit earlier about the overall macro environment right now how there's been you know a lot of unprecedented uh events and if you look at certain certain statistics that are historic now compared to you know just normal times in the past so you know i guess i'm going to leave a very general broad question for you but how do you view the overall macro environment right now? And what are some things like key metrics that really stand out to you? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that is very broad. So I'll try to narrow it down to a specific set of data points or areas that I think are truly important for you to keep up with to form like the right perspective or, or some sort of perspective on the macro environment. So I think a year ago, if you look back from literally now, so about a year ago, 11 months ago, you had three main questions the markets were very concerned with. You had uh, growing or new tension arise uh, in Europe between Russia and Ukraine. You had inflation starting to reach record levels. I mean, we, we had about over 9% at one point last summer. And then you also had the Fed saying that we're going to go into quantitative tighten, which hasn't really happened at the pace that's happened for the past year over the past decade. Right. I mean, they've tried it in 2015. They tried it in 2018. But when I say tried it, they literally tried and it, they had to backstop, backstop very quickly. Right. Because the markets just couldn't handle it almost. And you had situations where credit spreads or um, credit spreads gapped out or things were breaking in the market where, where if you continued that pace of hiking or quantitative tightening, it would cause, you know, major damage to the financial system. So the Fed's tried in the past. It's never really pushed the needle on it like they have in the past year. So you have the Fed saying, this time we're serious because inflation is getting out of control. And the Fed has two major mandates, right, that they speak about publicly and vocalize. I mean, you can argue there's more, but there's price stability, so inflation. And then there's um, the other side of it, which is the jobs and employment market, right? They want to keep a healthy labor market so people have jobs and they can afford normal services and goods. So th that's what the Fed 
Fed's mandate or, or job is to kind of keep these two areas of society like running at the right levels and making sure everything stays in a stabilized manner. So those are the three questions. And if you look at that, it's like, wow, like that's a lot to kind of digest, right, for the market after the stimulus you had in 2020 and 2021. So you pair that with this type of outlook on these three different areas, which are all unprecedented and a major ramification. So what that did is, to put it in a very simple kind of sentence, it created a lot of uncertainty, right? I mean, you couldn't really answer any of these three questions on how it's going to play out or what's going to happen next because none of these three things have happened in the past. Or if they've happened, it's not been at a level you can really model or figure out, okay, what's going to happen next. So when you have uncertainty, you have a volatile market because the market doesn't know how to price these events. So you saw last year, we we swung in major different directions, right? I mean, you were up uh, for a while and you were down at bear markets in multiple scenarios um, or multiple months uh, last year. And essentially the market ended down over the past year because of these three events, right? So, and these three events triggered many different outcomes or ramifications through other economic indicators or data points or areas of the market. So, for example, supply chain chains were affected because of Russia and Ukraine. You saw oil go up. You saw the FX impact it had. So, foreign currencies um, having being pegged against the dollar when the dollar was rising. So, you had this situation of FX currencies having a bottom line hit on many companies that have international exposure to revenues, right? So companies that are major scale, like the big tech companies that make a lot of money internationally. So you have the dollar, um, dollar side of the market also being affected along with um, the bond side, right? The bonds trying to price all this in. There was major volatility in the bonds um, market and they're trying to signal what's going to happen next, right? So you had all these different things happening and the market was uncertain how it's going to go forward. So now you fast forward a year, you're getting a little bit more certainty, right? The situation in Russia and Ukraine hasn't improved drastically, but you can argue that it's somewhat in a stalemate. And we've kind of seen what can or cannot happen out of there based on what has happened over the past year. And what I mean by that is you've seen countries being able to adapt to the oil situation or the oil supply chain shock. You had people concerned about Europe and can they survive this winter because of nat gas um, supplies that you, you know they were dependent on in Russia. So they, they had to retool and resupply themselves from other areas or other markets. So we're kind of at the tail end of winter and they've, they've been fine, right? You've had the dollar cool off, so you've had the dollar stabilize a bit and other currencies actually come up. A little bit compared to the dollar and the reason that i bring up the dollar it's very important because a lot of commodities over 40 50 percent i believe are traded in the usd so when you have a strong dollar you make commodities priced at a higher rate and these countries that that have seen weaker currencies well now you're like talking a big swing in the cost of the same good that you were paying for before so that's kind of started to cool off you've had supply chain issues ease a little bit because you have china reopening you know, the dollar cooling off. So that area is a little bit showing signs in the right direction. Then you also have a very healthy labor market, which of course the Fed wants, and you have inflation or headline inflation cooling off. So you're, you started at a peak about nine, nine-ish percent last year. Um, in the middle of last year, that was kind of the, the highest reading we had. 
and then you've had that come down significantly and people are arguing that you're past peak inflation now you can certainly form a thesis on core inflation or different components within inflation i don't want to get too much into that because that's a whole different side to talk about from a macroeconomic view and do you assume if that's going to be more sticky or not but you i think for the broad market is agreeing that headline inflation or, or some of the key drivers to inflation are showing signs of cooling off so now you're seeing a market that's seeing a little bit more certainty and then on top of that now you have the fed has gone through their rate hikes cycle and they've also you know started doing qt or or shaving off their balance sheet so now the question is when do they stop or do they stop and i think that's this question the market is pretty much saying if you look at the bond side it's already pricing and rate cuts going into the end of the year and the last time i checked it was about 150 bips. I haven't checked in the past week, but this was about a month ago or earlier this month that the bond market was pricing 150 basis point of a cut going into the back half of this year. So what they were saying is, A, you're not going to hit your 5% Fed funds target rate that you're talking about. And on top of that, you're going to have to cut it 150 basis points. So you're not even going to keep that as long as you've said. So you've heard at Brookings the last month or two months ago, I think it was end of November, where Powell said, or Powell has said in the past, I don't know if it was just at Brookings, but he's also said this publicly many times where we're going to raise rates higher than most expect, and it's going to stay there longer than most people expect. And the bond market's saying, no, you're not. They're pretty much saying you're bluffing us and you're not going to be able to do this. So you have that FOMC meeting coming up this Wednesday. I believe it's going to be 25 bips. That's kind of what's been projected and spoken about. And the question now is, how fast do you unwind that? And I mean, the markets run up the past month. I don't know if this rally is sustainable. It looks like a bear market rally, but who knows? Because some of the key indicators and moving averages, I mean, S&Ps kind of held off pretty well. So, I mean, there's a lot to be kind of, a lot to still unpack. And going forward, I think you're going to get more clarity, which is going to help the market. But at the same time, these effects that QT and rate hikes have do take time to affect the economic system or go through the financial system and kind of see the entire um, thing play out where it's like, okay, what's going to happen with, with all these changes in liquidity and liquidity measures and liquidity through the system? So, I mean, the, I think the main change in the outlook of the economy is that you have a bit more clarity this year. And that's i think helping the market in terms of trying to project what's going to happen next because the market's very forward looking so the market's thinking six to eight months ahead right that's how they price um data in the markets and that's how you trade uh when you're looking at it from a forward-looking perspective that hey i know this information today but this is what i'm projecting for the future because now i know this information i can model it so i mean going forward i think we remain volatile. I, I think it remains a chop year. And um, I, I think you start seeing some more stability at some point. Again, have we bottomed? I don't know. Um, it does look a bit frothy now because you have S&P trading over 18 times from a valuation perspective. If I would have told you a year ago, you can get 4.5% risk-free rate. And the Fed is going to be doing QT and continuing to raise rates. And you'll still have pretty high inflation. And I also said S&P is going to hover around 4,100. You'd probably think I'm crazy. So it's it's kind of hard to tell what's going to happen next. But it's been a very interesting January. And 
I think as the months go by, you're going to get more clarity and more data. And that's one thing the market likes. So in, in essence, or if I had to complete this view, you're going from uncertainty to a little bit more certainty, which is exactly what the market likes. And that's something that's easier to model. And then you can kind of place your bets based on that data and see how things are changing as we evolve. Yeah, for sure. And you brought up, you know, the Fed and the FOMC meeting that we have on Wednesday. We're recording this on Sunday, the 29th. So uh, I'm going to put you here on the spot a little bit. Uh, yeah, I know that the market's kind of pricing in like a 25 basis point hike, but I'm kind of under the opinion that, you know, based on what Powell's been saying, you know, that they're going to go higher for longer and other things like that. And you talked about, you know, the, the market also pricing in a cut later this year. Um, so, so, you know, how do you think, I mean, I know, I know how the market's predicting it, but do you think that the market is maybe th that this is, uh, maybe some, some sort of hopium here where, you know, the market's kind of hoping that Powell pivots and Powell, uh, you know, starts to cut because obviously, you know, the, the, the rate hikes, how, how it's been has, has been kind of negatively affecting the stock market as it, as it's been right now. But, you know, once it seems like any sort of, uh, you know, indication of a pivot, any kind of news that comes out, somebody from the Federal Reserve that says something about, you know, pivoting or maybe not hiking as quickly as they're hiking right now or have been, uh, the market seems to shoot up on that on that news. So, you know, how do you see it playing out? How do you see this next meeting going? And uh, yeah, how do you see it playing out for the rest of the year? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we get the 25 bips this week. I, I think the main thing most people are looking forward is the guidance and how the rest of the year is going to play out and does Powell flinch or not, right? Um, the bond market's certainly saying that he will and he will have to cave into making sure that the market doesn't crater because you have a really unique situation here. You have the labor markets remaining resilient. I mean, in the past month, you've seen many companies go through large layoffs, right? Many tech companies that have great balance sheets and a great business, but even they're laying off. But at the end, when you're looking at the numbers, or you're looking at the jobs market in terms of uh, the numbers that are coming in, unemployment and unemployment levels, they remain pretty strong. They still remain at a level that's not something that the Fed would not be happy with, right? I think it's in the threes. And the Fed has said that they're fine with the job market, unemployment market going up to 4 or 5%. So if they're true about that, and if they're not truly concerned about us um, going into a situation where the markets are simply going to not be able to handle the shock in the system. I don't know. I mean, the, I think Jay Powell kind of wants to keep his foot on the trigger and, and make sure that, because the main thing that they're looking at or worried about is inflation creeping back in or inflation actually staying very sticky, much more than others are expecting. And if you take your foot off the gas pedal, you take the risk of inflation running up or shooting up fast or or something else kind of being triggered that you couldn't anticipate. And now you've kind of started this unwinding. So you're kind of stuck in this middle of this vortex of what you're going to do next. So, and the Fed doesn't really have the tools to control many parts of inflation, right? They have, what they do is when you inflate rates or you make the price to borrow money or just harder to capitalize yourself, what you're hurting is demand, right? You're hurting the demand side. You're not actually affecting the supply side directly. You're affecting the demand side where it's saying to the consumer that things are going to be harder to to purchase or fund because you know, you're, you're going to have to pay more to borrow money or pay more on, on the money that 
you're you're taking in as a loan so uh, from that perspective you see okay demand goes down because now the cost of interest or, or borrowing goes up so that's kind of what happens when, when the fed is is raising rates so but you're also seeing a healthy consumer right i mean you've seen many major banks talk about you know consumer spending is something that they're not truly concerned about and the consumer is continuing to load up on debt and not really adapt their lifestyles to the way we kind of want uh, to do if you want to have a financially tight economy so you have that part of the market and you also have financial conditions easing so what i mean by that is uh, the measure to check how the financial outlook or the conditions look in the market to borrow money or liquidity or access capital has gone back to april 2022 levels so right when we started the rate hike cycle so it's almost like saying you went through this year raising rates and trying to uh, unwind liquidity or remove liquidity from the system but we're back at where we were earlier earlier last year in terms of the financial conditions of, of the financial system so it's it's a really tough spot for the fed because you obviously don't want to over tighten and you don't want to create a bigger mess that it's going to be harder to handle right you want to go through this process in in a way that you can achieve a soft landing and i think that narrative is starting to gain a lot more traction because if you are able to raise rates or you you are able to quantitative tighten um, in this market and you have a market that is able to digest all that remain in this range which has been in pretty much from 3500 to 4000 for the past 6 months while the job market stays healthy and then you start cutting or pivoting as many people are expecting or pricing in you quote unquote achieve what's called a soft landing right because you don't have the job side of the market blow up the stock market kind of knows what you're doing so they're able to handle it or or take um take the data that they're getting and, and adjust accordingly so this is kind of the narrative that i think has gotten more attention or people were afraid that this was not possible but it's starting to look a little bit more possible based on what we're seeing in the past i would say month or two with the different economic indicator data that we've seen and how the markets reacted to this whole thing and also looking at it and saying a pivot has to come whether it's now or in the next few months so it's really on how much power believes inflation is or is not in control and also how resilient he thinks the market can be to him staying at a higher rate for longer right can the market actually handle it or is he going to break some part of the system in the economy that's going to require him to change his stance so i think those are the two things and that's what the market is going to be paying attention on on wednesday to see if he gives any type of direction his how his tone is and what he's how he's sounding in terms of which side of the direction or which side of the ball he's going to be on so i think you have a situation where the market's already looking at things a certain way and it's really on does powell agree or not so i think this meeting but also the next couple of meetings are going to be very very critical and look the 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 good news is or the the positive news is again i don't want to turn this into a uh doom and gloom show because th- there is a positivity right because if you go through a cycle that's been this tough in terms of raising rates and 
causing all this, uh, I guess, uncertainty and um, creating these times where you're, you're just not sure, like, what's going to happen. You're hopefully coming to the end of that and things start looking a little bit more positive as he unwinds and hopefully find a resolution in Europe and some of these things just kind of stabilize with that. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? I mean, bring rates down to two, 3%, let the markets function the way they're supposed to function and let them adjust accordingly. And, you know, hopefully there's not much more damage in Europe and things kind of calm down. Then hopefully there's a peaceful resolution and you have supply chains back in place. I mean, I think that's the hope that most people or the market is trading with, that there is going to be resolution in some of these areas. Inflation will eventually cool off or if it already hasn't. And you're going to have the Fed say, okay, I think our job is kind of done here from the inflation side and the market's in a better spot. So, yeah, I mean, a lot more to kind of unpack going forward, but that's kind of how the market's looking at it right now. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you brought up, unemployment and kind of how the, how the market's looking, but I want to get into some of the, uh, you know, the earnings that we're seeing these days, you know, two of the big ones is from this past week were Microsoft and Tesla, which I think, you know, they're both kind of two separate issues. So we can get into them one by one, but with Microsoft, I thought it was really interesting that we saw, you know, as uh, the, the uh, earnings were announced after hours, and right before the earnings were announced, we saw an initial big jolt in the after hours uh, stock price and then immediately came back, right back down and uh, below where it was started that day. So it went from you know, immediately positive to right back down negative. So um, I guess, you know, get into why you think that that maybe happened that way and, uh, you know, how you're viewing overall their earnings and everything like that, because it does seem like, you know, a lot of these companies, it's it's almost like an, a quote unquote earnings recession right now where a lot of companies are not quite making as much as they were maybe a couple of years ago. And, you know, of course, those margins that they have on everything, uh, prices had to go up and, you know, workers got more expensive and everything like that, too. So, um, you know, what are you kind of seeing based on uh, the Microsoft earnings? Yeah, I mean, to the first point on the initial reaction or how the market traded it. That's not something I watch too closely or, or that's not my area that I focus on significantly because I'm not trading day to day nor am I trying to make too much sense of these daily moves. But I think the more important point was a couple of things like you mentioned, the cost of capital is going up. So you're going to see a bottom line hit in your margins. Work with the workforce, I think you're seeing situations where people are overhired and they need to kind of change that and become a little bit more lean. So you're seeing that happening in tech. And like you mentioned, the margins are compressed, right? Where you have a situation where if capital is harder to come by and your consumer or your, your products or services aren't selling or going at the same rate from, from Microsoft perspective that you're talking about enterprises. And you've seen that, right? With Azure, I think that was the biggest data point or the biggest element of Microsoft's report that I was most uh, looking at is how does Azure, their cloud business grow? And you saw a drop there um, and, and an area that, you know, could see more kind of instability through this year because of the cost cutting pressures many businesses and customers will face because of the way the economy has kind of unfolded in the past year or so. So people need to look to cut costs and they've 
you know, cut pieces of their workforce or they're cutting on spending or they're cutting on parts of the business that they simply just don't think they need right now. So I think the Azure piece was interesting and that's something to watch, of course, with Amazon and Google this week as well. So I think they'll paint a better picture what's going on in the cloud side of things. With Tesla, you had a beat on the top and bottom lines on the EPS and revenue, which was good and the market liked that. And you also had them guide to about 1.8 million vehicles for, for this year that they're going to um, be able to sell. So that's another thing I think came almost in line. I think the market was predicting 1.9 or 2 million, I believe. And Elon said that he thinks 2 million is possible, but he's guiding for 1.8 right now. He talked about the Cybertruck going into production later in the year. And you also had margins compressed a little bit there, right? The average sale price of the average margin on the car came down a little bit. Um, so you saw a little bit of a margin hit from that perspective, which was kind of expected. I think with these earnings, it's like you said, I mean, they're an, under tremendous pressure and it remains to be seen on how this is going to continue through the year, right? So it's not just this quarter, it's about how strong you can say stay in Q2, Q3, and how you come out of this kind of difficult part in the markets where you're going through this situation where you're unwinding some pieces of your workforce, you're seeing costs being cut on the consumer side, and you also have you know, different products and services that you're trying to invest in or build in. So, I mean, I don't know if you're truly in an earnings recession yet. I still think I mean, the S&Ps had 25, 30%, if I'm not wrong, I could be wrong, but about that many companies report. So you still have a lot more to see. Um, so far, the reactions have been mixed. Um, but again, I don't think one quarter is enough data to truly come up with that type of thesis or view. Um, I still think there's a lot more that we need to kind of dissect. And I think this week will be pretty telling, right? You'll have three out of, or actually four out of the five or six major big tech companies reported with Facebook and Amazon, Apple, Google, along with some other bigger names. I think UPS also reports this week. You have Snapchat, EMD. So, uh, and there's also rate hikes decisions around the world, right? You have the ECB, BOE, um, along with the Fed here in America. So I still think there's a lot more data we need to look at. I wouldn't really call it an earnings recession yet, but yes, I mean, that is possible, right? That's one of the outcomes that's possible when you see people spending less or consumer spending less, margins being compressed, you having to cut costs as a company, all that adds up to your earnings being hit or not being able to keep up the growth levels that you originally had anticipated or you were able to uh, in, a, in a much easier quantitative cycle. So I think there's still more to come, but yeah, the earnings reports this week weren't as bad as it could have been. Of course, uh, it could have been worse. So I think there was certainly some good data in, in some of these reports, but of course, the guidance and the look forward is what we need to kind of focus on and kind of just continue following if how this plays out. But like I said, S&P is trading right now, currently at the level that it closed on Friday, a little bit over 18 times earnings. So certainly seems to be a bit extended. And, you know, is that something that the market can keep up? 18 times is a pretty good premium you're paying on a company on average in this type of financial condition or financial kind of outlook you have on the market or data that you have 
in terms of where the risk free rate is. So I think more to come on you know, what's going on with earnings. I think there's still more to unpack and a lot more data to look at. But those are my two cents for this week. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you went over obviously Microsoft, Azure, the cloud, and we got a lot of earnings upcoming within this next week, obviously the FOMC meeting and everything like that. But I want to dive in a little deeper into Tesla because, you know, it is kind of a polarizing topic, especially on FinTwit. It seems like that's always a hot button topic. There's always some space going on it about Elon or something or other than that. But I mean, the stock has been absolutely on a tear year to date. Year to date, it's almost up 65%. And we're uh, we're not even a full month into the year. Obviously, the month, uh, the full month will be, um, you know, on this Tuesday. But, you know, I, I guess, obviously, it, it probably can't continue this pace going up 65% every single month. But, you know, do, do you see this as being kind of like a microcosm of this bear market rally where, growth has been getting killed all of last year and a lot of stocks like Tesla and some of these, you know, bigger tech stocks that had a lot of volatility before, you know, maybe had a, a pretty poor performance last year. And so it's a lot more people kind of, I guess, dumping more money into, uh, you know, Tesla on the signs of, Hey, this earning wasn't as bad as it could have been sort of thing. Or how do you view, I guess, uh, just overall, I guess, how, how this stock is performing just within this past month as it's been kind of on this tear? Yeah, it's certainly been very interesting to see Tesla. I mean, it's one of the best returners on investment this month. As you mentioned, um, you've had a great performance this month. And I think there's a few different things happen. You've had earnings come in, of course, as we just chatted about. Uh, they beat, so you had you know, good print from that perspective. You certainly were oversold to a certain extent um, heading into last month and also with the fear of earnings missing or having some sort of downturn or, or effect that could steer things in a different direction. You also had them cut prices on many different vehicles or models that they have. So people are still not sure how that's going to play out. And it seems like that helped demand come back in and people were buying more Tesla. So that was one part of the market or one piece of data that the market was unsure about. And then you also have the options side, which if you look at some data, I mean, this is what caused the squeeze in 2020 or 2021 or not caused it, but that's where the squeeze kind of generated from was the options market. Um, and you have that kind of happening again, where, Tesla is being treated um, at massive proportions on the options side of the market. And that can certainly have major implications from a volatility perspective and swing the price um, much higher or lower than you're normally used to. So you have that going on as well, um, along with an out, uh, outlook that Elon has provided that honestly, I mean, wasn't that bad, right? I mean, there's certainly a scare or fear that if you go into a recession or if we are in a quote-unquote official recession that automakers typically don't do that great right i mean 08 you had some automakers many large-scale ones not many but like some some large-scale ones had to get bailed out or needed help from the government um where you have elon here or tesla i think they can come out of this you know hopefully you're potentially fine right because of the 
balance sheet that they have because of the pricing power that they carry. And I think even if they see a hit uh, on their business, I think they can handle it because of the scale and the way he's grown the business to where it is today. Um, and I think that's what hopefulness or I guess premium is getting put on the stock right now is that if you compare it to other automakers, which if you're a bear, you want to value the stock or the company as an automaker, right? If you're a little bit more bullish or if you're optimistic on this business, as I am to a certain extent, you look at it beyond just the auto business, even though that's where you get majority of its revenue and you're looking at other aspects and see if you can capitalize or really monetize other verticals and turn this into a, a giant energy AI automated auto, automaker um, kind of business. So I think you have a situation where the markets were lopsided. They were going in thinking that there's going to be a big mess somewhere. And you had people getting a bit squeezed out on the option side. And you have the market saying that, hey, Tesla actually might be able to come out of this a bit stronger or, or, or in a better shape than some of the other automaker businesses because they have um, great scalability in the EV side. They, they're still uh, gaining traction in that market. Demand remains um, fine. We'll see how that plays out for the rest of the year. And you have a, a business that can potentially handle this margin compression in, a, in an industry that margins aren't that great to begin with, right? And this is a business that already carries better margins than its peers and can potentially, like they just did, cut their prices and afford that margin cut on their bottom line because they have that type of balance sheet where they can't afford a, a bit of a downturn there. So it's it's a certainly a unique stock or a very unique business. And I think Elon is going to f come out of this hopefully stronger. I mean, even though I am bullish on the company and on the stock, I'm not someone that's blinded by some of the you know, challenges that Tesla could face in an economic downturn. And I think you just need to keep adjusting to the data you're seeing, right? I, I, I see all these spaces and people commenting on Tesla one side or the other, and you may like or like dislike the stock, but I think you have to respect him for the fact on what he's done for the company, the way he's executed. I mean, he, he's not single-handedly responsible, responsible, as some people don't like to say, but whether you like it or not, he's certainly had a major contribution to this sector, right? The EV sector, electrification, electrification and um, just ramping up that side of auto businesses where, you know, in the past it wasn't that scalable. It wasn't an area that many could get into. And it was certainly challenging to figure out the innovation and the strategy to build this type of business where you're dependent on different components in the vehicle than you're typically used to. So, I mean, I don't know how the stock's going to play out going forward. I, I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but it's been interesting to see this squeeze. It certainly seems it's rallied um, very quickly um, and it's approaching its 200-day average, I believe. It's at 225, would kind of hit the 200-day average. So uh, let's see. I think that's the level I'm looking at, if it can get there or not, or if it hits that and bounces down. So that's kind of a key level or key metric to kind of watch over here. 
Yeah, for sure. And, and um, yeah, that's a great insight. And obviously they have done a lot to push forward the electrical vehicle markets and, and everything else, but they do have a little bit, uh, you know, other technology that they've developed. So, you know, I see the argument on both sides where people are arguing like, hey, you know, if you value it as strictly as a vehicle company, it is way overvalued compared to, you know, everything else in the market. But, you know, on the flip side, there is a lot more that Tesla does and, uh, you know, Elon is definitely one of those polarizing figures. So I kind of want to get into that as, uh, you know, not just Elon, but as like a CEO that's kind of forward facing. And, you know, how much weight do you take into a company when you have, you know, maybe a CEO like like uh, Elon Musk or somebody of that nature? Uh, obviously, you know, maybe there's not anybody of his stature now other than maybe Bezos, maybe Bill Gates or or some of these others. Um, but uh, you know, when you have a CEO that that's like that, that's built up this successful company and then they're still running it and, you know, working very hard, it seems, you know, to to kind of push that forward. How much weight do you, uh, you know, put in that? Like who's at the top, who's at the helm of leadership? Uh, when you're evaluating a company, you're kind of like projecting or looking at growth or do you kind of just look at, I guess, more of, you know, the earnings and, uh, you know, base it more off past history? So I think with Elon or specifically towards Tesla, Elon has been very critical um, and crucial to its business. And I mean, many, I mean, the other side of the party or other part of the market that doesn't like him or dislikes him certainly will argue against that. But I'm of the camp that whether you like him or dislike him, it's his strategy, his, his vision and his executional ability and thought process has been very um, important to Tesla's business and growth. So I think valuing it is data dependent, but of course there's a a non kind of a quantitative value you carry when you have a figure like Elon or Bezos or Satya Nadella or Sundar at Google, where these people are visionaries and they do things and think beyond what, what some of us can and they execute and, innovate at kind of peak levels that really create these businesses that become massive and highly valued and create a lot of products and services that people want to buy or uh, engage with. So with Elon, I think, of course, you want to want him to stay at the helm and it's hard to kind of take everything he says and decipher it and figure out how it's going to affect the stock because he's such a big public figure and he has so much, I guess, polarizing views or sometimes his views can be looked at in a polarizing way and part of me is like you know you kind of don't want that attached to a stock because you just want them to just execute and get the job done and, and just let that story speak for itself but part of it's like you can use that a little bit right because it helps market the company they don't spend on marketing i mean he's not he certainly is a smart guy so it, it does it, it is valuable to hear someone's insights so I think it's a situation where you do want him to keep doing what he's doing. I mean, he's built this business and he's created a tremendous brand. Um, but I also think Tesla's at a spot where I think he can phase out, um, hopefully in the next couple of years and, and focus on SpaceX or his other ambitions he has. And I think they're going to be able to handle it. I mean, the business is doing well right now. I mean, I think we're at a point where you've seen them show scalability meet consumer demand, get cars on the on the road 
hit on some of their aspirations from FSD to the features they've wanted to add to their cars. So I think he's at a point where he probably stabilizes this and gets it through this next difficult period we have from a macroeconomic situation. And, you know, maybe he does kind of hand it off and move on to his other ventures. And I think this business has a lot to look forward to in terms of the future levers that can be pulled um, to really monetize and scale it to the next level and make it beyond this automaker it is today, which I personally don't think it's just an automaker, but you can certainly say that from a technicality perspective based on where they're in their revenue. So, I mean, it's hard to predict what's going to happen with Elon and how that affects the stock. I mean, none of us could really do that, but I mean, my, my wish or my goal would be that he continues executing and staying with the company as long as he possibly can. Um, and I'm sure he's going to have a proper transition plan and figure out a way to hand this business off and let it keep running um, as it has been um, and, and continue to scale and integrate and, and build a, a brand that's here to stay and certainly not a fad because I think people still argue that today. So I think there's still the story in Tesla and Elon is still in its early stages. I mean, it's been a decade and I think he's here to stay and this company's here to stay. It just remains to be seen. Does it become this tech or AI or energy business that some people are optimistic it can become, or does it end up becoming a traditional automaker that innovated one sector? So I'm of the belief that it's going to become this energy and AI and this kind of tech or energy business, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think there's still a lot that needs to be proven there. And of course you want Elon there right now to continue to build upon that. Yeah, for sure. And it, it is interesting, right? I mean, it's like anytime Elon can kind of, it seems like he can almost like move the uh, move the stock price just by tweeting something out, which is, uh, you know, maybe not always the best for, for some bag holders or some uh, owners of the stock. But hey, like you said, you, you probably got to take the good with the bad when it comes to somebody like Elon, because he's pushed the company and pushed, you know, the limits of the EV market. But we'll wrap it up here with one more one last question. Uh, you know, you've kind of alluded to the the tough economic times that we have ahead. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave the floor open to you. I mean, it's a, it's a tough thing to do, but how do you think that this all sort of plays out? Do you think that we kind of, you know, this is a bear market rally. Maybe we go back to a little correction and then we go sideways for a while. Do you think we're, you know, it, it's uh, going to be something where it's, it's more longer and, and kind of dra dragged out? Or do you think this is maybe going to be a, Maybe uh, I guess a short little blip in uh, in the radar. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I do certainly believe that there is a strong chance, or at least I'm of the mindset. I could be completely wrong that we do retest the lows we've seen in June or October, which was around thirty five, thirty six hundred on the S and P. Either a retest or a break of that, I think it's possible, and that may potentially kind of eventually create that bottom that everyone's looking for in the markets. I do see a situation. I kind of am a little bit more favoring what the bond market is saying. And I do think the Fed ends up blinking a little bit sooner than they've kind of portrayed so far. And I mean, the data you're seeing now and how consumers are doing, how the job markets remain, if that continues, then 
Maybe you do see some sort of recession or, or retest of these lows, but maybe it's not as drastic or drawn out as far as people originally had thought. Um, like I said, you were in a very uncertain environment last year, so people turned very bearish and for the right reasons, but now it's time to tailor your views based on the new data you're seeing or the data you're starting to see come in and change, right, and adjust. So again, I'm not you know completely sure how this all plays out, but I do think we, we retest the lows um, again at some point this year, and you know hopefully that could eventually be the part where you either are in this chop situation and you stay in this specific range and eventually come out of it. And I mean, some of these tech companies have already formed some strong basis for many months now because you've seen growth and SaaS stocks take a huge hit already. And some of them are down 60 to 80% over the past year. So, I mean, if they're able to come out of this and do well, I mean, you also have the question, like how much more they're going to continue to get hit when they've already been re-rated to pretty decent multiples on some quality businesses. Again, not all, but some. So I think it's a, a market where you are going to get bargains. And, you know, if you're looking at it from a long-term view, I mean, if you believe in the state of our economy and our our, our, our markets and are optimistic on your the future of innovation and technology and things that are yet to come, there's certainly going to be stocks or businesses that are going to be off at a, at a premium or at a multiple that will look cheap when you look back at it. But I think for most people, if, if that's not the business you want to be in, it's picking stocks is very hard. I mean, index funds and looking at things from a broad perspective is certainly not a bad thing. And I think that, I mean, your 401ks are essentially index funds. So, and if you look at historical averages, they, they tend to perform just fine and compound over time. So, you know, I think, you know, if you're not looking at this data as closely and are not following the markets that much or you're not sure what's going to happen next, I mean, allocating to that side of the um, asset is, is not really a bad thing. So, you know, I don't know what exactly happens from here, but I've, I've laid out some of the data and the points I'm looking at. Continue to kind of watch all this unfold and hopefully it's not as drastic or as... Uh, massive as people originally thought and you know hopefully we'll come out of this stronger and better but i think it remains a chop year and very volatile and certainly range bound in certain aspects depending on how you look at indexes or the, the data or the pricing levels on these indexes so i, I think it's certainly still going to be a tough year and it's not going to be easy to decipher everything but eventually and over time you're going to get a lot more clarity and I think that will allow you to make better data-driven decisions and I think that's the best part about this eventually is that things will become a little bit more clear and you'll be able to model and forecast um, hopefully with less variables and more confidence in what you're seeing and make kind of the best thought decision for yourself. Well, this is all awesome stuff. I really enjoyed this conversation. You know, you're great at sharing all these insights on uh, Twitter spaces, but I'm glad uh, you took the time to come on the podcast. So I really appreciate it. Uh, but, you know, for those in the audience that don't know you, why don't you tell everybody what you got going on and where they can find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, pretty active there. Um, so I'm R, my last name, Hemarjani, number nine uh, on Twitter. I'm also actually going to be starting up a daily newsletter, which is going to be completely free. 
for anyone that subscribes to it. Um, that's going to be called the one read. So T H E one O N E read um, on Twitter. And that's what uh, the newsletter is going to be called. It's going to be, think of it as an extension of what I share typically on Twitter, which is kind of breaking down what's happening in the markets, trying to simplify it and make it digestible for readers. And um, it'll be a little bit longer form, but hopefully it's something you can read and walk away with a good sense of what's happening in the markets on a day-to-day basis without having to check many different sources or have to kind of curate information on your own. It's kind of been going to be done for you and handed to you in your inbox and something that you can read quickly and get a good gauge on what's happening day to day. And like I said, it's going to be delivered to you every single day. So that's going to be launching very soon. I mean, I've put out a couple of tweets in some of the threads that I've shared recently, but I haven't actually shared it um, that publicly yet. Um, but the handle is active and it'll be launching probably early to mid-Feb. So um, that's something to look out for. Awesome. Yeah. When that gets launched, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll tweet it out, but I'll put out all the uh, links to your Twitter account and everything like that in the show notes as well. So go ahead and give him a follow on Twitter. He's one of the best follows in FinTwit, always doing spaces and uh, tweeting out great threads. So uh, Raul, it was a pleasure to talk to you and get this, uh, you know, hour long conversation where I just got to talk to you myself here and ask you some great questions. So I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to have you back on in the future. I appreciate it, Brandon, man. This was awesome. And, uh, you know, good luck with everything. I mean, you're putting out some great content yourself and you host some great spaces. So it's been exciting chatting with you and definitely um, appreciate the invite and happy to be back on again. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, man. Have a good one.